Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host from the city of Chicago. Joining us is Jed Brewer. That's Dr. Jed Brewer to the likes of you. Is it? No, I made that up. I don't. I barely graduated from college. I definitely don't have a doctoral degree. But be I cool, mean, though. Think about it. Just imagine how cool it would be if I was Dr. Jed Brewer. <laughs> I don't think they can arrest you for saying it if you don't get it. You could also That's legally true. change your first name to Doctor. <laughs> I have an honorary doctorate from the University of Me. You going to put that in your Facebook below studied at the School of Hard Knocks, are you? <laughs> I am now, now, now that it's been presented to me as an option that had not previously occurred to me. Yes. Excellent. Joining us via the magic internet, all the way from Mercury, Tennessee, in his triumph for return to the podcast, Lee Younger. I like the idea of Jed also adding Esquire to the end of whatever this monstrosity is <laughs> becoming. Jed Theodore Logan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did go to high school and play football with a guy who's Literal first name was Sir. Yeah, that's wow. true. So his, his okay his, wasn't the rest of his name, but this. So his legal, legal name was along the lines of Sir John Smith. Okay, yeah, and I appreciate <laughs> the parents just going for that. Absolutely. Hey, we call your shot, man. Yeah, yeah, totally. Guy born in the mid '80s in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I don't know that anyone was going to buy on him being the gentry, but. And I probably looked good on some on some, probably looked confusingly good on some resumes over the years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the nobility is baked in. <laughs> That's right. It's one of those weird things where he bought one square foot of land in Wales or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of such things like that, we have a couple of scam watch emergencies. Ooh. Never out of lack for them, but we've got some solid things that have come across our face on the internet here that we want to share with you, the fine listening public. The first is from a former guest on the show here, uh, Preachers and Sneakers, ah, over on the Instagram. Ah. A little while back, he shared a uh, Ticketmaster link, or a Ticketmaster screenshot of the Elevation Worship and Stephen Furtick live event at the Kia Forum which I had to look up, and I found out is in lovely Inglewood, California. Ooh. I'm good, thanks. So they are doing a stadium tour, Stephen Furtick and the Elevation Worship Band. And uh, our friend at Preachers and Sneakers uh, went ahead and did the sort by section and looked for Section B Row 1 tickets, which somebody which are still for sale, uh, for the low, low price of $1,080.25 each. <laughs> Plus fees. Wow. Ticketmaster, keep that in mind. Plus fees. Yeah, so $30,000 then. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Over a thousand bucks a pop for front row tickets to church. I'd like to just to start the discussion by offering, like, I've been a musician a long time and I've been to a lot of concerts. I have never been close to spending a thousand dollars on a concert ticket. I mean, like, not even in in the vague vicinity of that quantity of money. You no. know, Jed, I had a similar thought, and I went to look, and I I typed in Elevation Church, uh, you know, stadium tour, in the hopes that I would find a description of like what they expected people to pay upwards of a thousand dollars. For front row tickets too. 
because we we our assumption is just it's kind of like you know a worship concert and Stephen Furtick comes out and says some nonsense and wears I, if you're from that row you can probably see get a really good look at his three thousand dollar sneakers so that's cool sure absolutely yeah um but you know maybe I maybe we're wrong maybe there's juggling maybe maybe somebody uh you know does some close some close up sleight of hand magic that your your good seats will get you. So I go to elevationchurch.org where they have their landing page, and all it is is a single, really, really looks like we let the uh, the high school intern do this on Photoshop, like bad level cool. of comping. One image that literally only says Elevation Nights, Elevation Worship, Stephen Furtick. And Elevation Nights sounds like a show that would have come on on the USA Network at like 11 p.m. <laughs> on a weeknight back in the 90s. <laughs> Right after Quantum Leap. Yeah. Elevation Nights. Um, uh, but it's just the one image and then uh, eight tour dates with absolutely no description of what this is. Yeah, that's because you're going to hear this band play Good Good Father and then a guy's going to preach. And that's going to cost you a thousand bucks. Yeah, that's almost certainly exactly what's going to happen. Um, so I went, I also went to StubHub to look at what else you could get for a thousand ish dollars. I found uh, front row tickets to the smashing pumpkins at the United center here in Chicago. Okay. Um, you can get uh, some very nice uh, general entry floor seats for black pink playing the United ah. center, uh, K-pop sensations themselves. Uh, let's look like, let's see what you can get Lizzo tickets for. These are all around the same amount of time. Oh, Lizzo sold out. So that's that's bad. You you may have noticed if you find the preachers and sneaker screenshot, uh, the elevation worship tour very much not sold out. <laughs> a lot of blue in that map. So that's good. Um, so you could again maybe if you're of a certain generation, you get a nice front row situation to see the Smashing Pumpkins, Black Pink. You could get uh, some. I tried to look at uh. For because I'm in had this set into Chicago, so you know, show me local stuff. Uh, the big sports one was the Ohio State Buckeyes coming to uh, Northwestern, and I cannot find a ticket that costs this much. So that one's that one's out. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, the 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 night is called Elevation, right? If if you were paying a thousand dollars, but it was instead of Elevation, it was called Levitation, and Stephen Furtick was actually going to like David Blaine style levitate in front of your face, then being on the front row, that might actually be kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Speaking of things that are pretty cool, I have one. I have looked up seeing Hamilton on Broadway. I have found the most expensive ticket. I picked a a random Saturday, the 8 p.m. show, the most expensive ticket. And I want to be clear, the dollar value I'm about to read includes fees. So this is uh, not the Ticketmaster thing where they're about to, you know, the swapperoo on you. This includes fees, $498. Okay. Best seat in the house for the on-Broadway Hamilton is <laughs> half of the cost of seeing Stephen Furtick. Well, maybe Stephen Furtick will rap. <laughs> I'm not sure if that makes the ticket worth more or less. Well, I mean, you could argue that Stephen Furtick and his fellows are starting to start their own country. Well, yes, you could also <laughs> argue that they give a concerningly um, washed-over view of their own history. 
which, you know, I think we're finding some commonalities with Hamilton. <laughs> Unfortunately. Hey, this is this would be actually be an addition they could take from Hamilton. Maybe it has one of those big spinning stages. There you go. That'd be something, just doing like a, a moving set change for no reason while Stevens Verdict just continues his sermon about uh, wanting it more or whatever. Lots of the cast of Hamilton play a completely different character in Act 2, so can Stephen Furtick do that as well? Oh, or you could do, like, kind of the normal setup of, like, you know, a couple songs, somebody comes out and talks, a couple songs, but every time the band has to switch instruments at random between songs, (laughs) like, kind of a a live theater situation. I would like more more church bands to just take that on as a thing, like a special event. Like we're going to spin, spin a big wheel, and now the person who was just one of the backup singers has to start playing rhythm guitar, and we don't know if they know how. <laughs> I, I have another one. So I've, I'm going to, to a preferred travel portal that does deals. You can fly first class to a tropical paradise for the same price as seeing Stephen Furtick for one night. Wow, dude. First class to a tropical paradise or Stephen Furtick. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still on the, the, the tour page. So they're hitting okay. up uh, Glendale, Arizona, Las Vegas, Nevada, Sac- Sacramento, Eugene, Oregon, Seattle, Oakland, San Diego, and Los Angeles on this little swing of a tour. Which, for those of you keeping score at home, uh, Elevation Church is based in North Carolina. I believe, oh, South Carolina, I believe. So I don't know why they're on the other side or why they're doing a West Coast tour. But think of all the things you could, well, maybe except for Glendale, all the things in all these towns you could be doing. Yeah, yeah. You're taking your megachurch show to LA, Oakland, and Vegas. Yeah. Who is going? My, you, you, you brought up a really good point, Matt, which is that Elevation Church is... is uh, has a home base in in one of the Carolinas and elevation church is like, it's ostensibly a church, right? One would assume for tax purposes. Okay. So here's my, here's my big question. Um, like rather than traveling to all those other places, like does anybody need help right there in that town where you like, can you just like help somebody like in that town where your church is centered? Does any like, are there, are there people like in that town? Maybe that are having like a hard time. You could just like help them or listen to them or meet their needs. Well, according to their Twitter page, um, Elevation Church's main campus is based in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, probably not. The current uh, estimation of the Charlotte metro area population is 873,500 people. And apparently they're all doing fine. Everybody's doing great. So we just we're just going to Vegas to put on our mega church service. And I have to wonder who is buying this ticket. And I take us back to Lee's earlier um earlier question about elevation versus levitation. Someone's going to buy a ticket in Vegas to Elevation Nights, thinking that is some kind of magic show, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I sit close enough, I'll see how they do it, Matt. That's right. You're going to get that guy with the mask from the 90s Fox show. He's going to break down all the secrets for me. (laughs) 
You said that LA is one of the places they're going, right? Yes. Okay, so this is going to require just a, a quick bit. Uh, in the spirit of the cool things you get in these towns, this is going to require a, a quick bit of explanation. So there's, there are kinds of restaurants that are called prefix dining. And what that means is that they have a fixed menu and they have a fixed price. So like you don't, you don't show up and you say, I'd like you know, these three things and they figure out what it costs. Just this is what it costs to eat here. And then you know, we, we bring out. You will eat what Chef Raul chooses to give you. Exactly right. Exactly right. So I, I've just Googled top prefix restaurant Los Angeles, and sure. I've gone I've gone to the top thing on Yelp. We'll we'll, we'll keep the the name um um uh, uh secret because they did not pay, but they could get mentioned if they wanted to. Hey, how you doing? Would you like a little of that sweet sweet say that bump unnamed restaurant in Los Angeles? <laughs> Reach out to us. But I'm just saying the top prefix dining restaurant. In Los Angeles, you and your friend could not only have the prefix menu, you could include the premium wine pairing that's just as much as the food. You could do all of that for the same price as seeing Stephen Furtick. One of you seeing Stephen Furtick. Both of you could have the best meal you've ever had. Or one of you could see Stephen Furtick. Well, I've done a similar uh, search here, Jed, and I will name this one because it's, it's relevant. Um, California restaurant, the French Laundry. Oh, yes. Widely considered to be uh, the best restaurant in America. Three Michelin star, the whole, the whole shebang bang. Um, you can get a standard nine-course tasting menu uh, for $350 a person, starting price. Yeah. Yeah. So almost three of you could eat there. Yeah. Yeah. Or one of you. Uh, one of you. I don't know whose idea this was. I hope. I, I just want to get in the mind because uh, StubHub or Ticketmaster, I'm not sure which one it is. But either way, there's supposed to be, Ticketmaster even is supposed to be like a dynamic pricing concept where, you know, yeah. you get closer to the thing, it goes down or whatever. I, I, the only person I appreciate in all this is the person who said, I think somebody's a sucker enough to do this. Yeah. That's yeah. a person who's really embracing you have not because you ask not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to I want to to look at the other side of this for just a second because it's kind of blowing my mind as I'm contemplating it. So, like, one of the things that's important to me, right? Like, when I spend money, whether I spend a little or I spend what for me is a lot, right? I want to walk away from that being like, dude, that felt commensurate. That yeah. felt good. I'm I'm glad I did that, right? So, like, if I eat at you know uh, White Castle and it's like four dollars. Um, an awful, awful part of me is like, you know what? I feel good about that decision. I th- I think yeah. I got four dollars. Not worth physically, of, of, but no, no, not physically. Emotionally, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's similarly, you know, if you you go out to some place nicer and the bill's a little bit more than four dollars, you want to be like, you know, I, I feel good. I feel like yeah, I looked at the bill and I feel like we got that much worth out of what we did, right? So what I want to know is, I want to think about the person who goes to the thousand dollar Stephen Furtick show and walks away going, yeah, that was it. That that did it. I'm really glad I did that. Well, to that point, Jed, and I don't go to a lot of live music because I consider it to be sinful. Um, <laughs> but I have gone to some live sports, uh, pro wrestling, those kind of things. And I've gone to several shows where I could have afforded better tickets. But yeah. there's part of me that said, I will just spend the whole time thinking about, I can't believe I spent that much on these tickets. Yeah. Like yeah, there's yeah. a sweet spot. They're still yeah. good seats. But if, you know... If I if I'm sitting next to someone 
who smells and I got to leave or, you know, something, it ends up not being a good show. So be like, well, disappointing, but we're fine. How, how, how much money do you have to have to spend the $2,000 and be like, oh yeah, it makes a pretty good point about how Jesus really prefers the, the push pull leg split probably. <laughs> or whatever I, I don't listen to a lot of Stephen Furtick, Stephen Furtick sermons but you know maybe we do need a, a revolution of relationships or whatever yeah what does a thousand dollar sermon sound like that's a good question that's a, that's a good question man I mean if, I, if I'm paying a thousand dollars for something that has a sermon in it it needs to be tailored to me specifically <laughs> you need to be like to fill out a contact card and be like what are you dealing with that's right do you have any favorite parables or pop culture references that can be put into this that would really bring it home for you yeah Yeah. like we have written a bespoke sermon about what season five of the simpsons can teach you about the need to be emotionally open okay well we've you know what that's something Look, we all have we all have giants in our lives that we're trying to deal with. We've all been in that moment where Hulk Hogan, he's going to try and body slam Andre the Giant. Can he do it? We don't know. We've all been in that moment of we're not sure if we can handle the task ahead of us. And that's when we turn and ask for strength, Matt King. Yeah. And then I have to go to him and say, um, Hulk Hogan was canceled for several horrifically racist <laughs> remarks. Um, that shows a lack of research on your end to... Pitch me something or he's the baby face. I'm going to need at least $800 back. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Patreon recall. That's yeah, like, good. That's <laughs> you, didn't pay, you didn't give me what I needed, so I'm going to have to take back some of the cash, man. You have displeased your patron. There should be a feature on Ticketmaster that would justify their enormous fees of like, um, you can recall up to 20% of your ticket fee if the, this band does not play the song you reasonably expected to hear. <laughs> yes. They're putting together that set list and being like, well, maybe the new one and we skip the song from the soundtrack. See, Matt, now you're taking me back to the playing it, playing the Simpsons beats for Matt King. What was it? The, uh, was the, the second, the, what was it? The second encore when he hit him with moon river. That's right. I didn't think he was going to play it and bam, second encore. And that leaves us with the idea of the Elevation Worship Tour going to Branson, Missouri. And oh. I think that that I wouldn't watch that show, but I would watch the behind-the-scenes documentary about that. Yeah. Kind of how do the people of Branson react to them? How do they react to uh, the people of Branson? Kind of a real fish-out-of-water-in-both-ways situation. And with that said, please do not spend this money on that. Spend it on almost anything else. And we're going to declare, for free, emergency off. There's a premium version of emergency off that costs a thousand dollars. So just just putting that out there. Absolutely, you it, it'll sound so loud it'll make your ears bleed. You'll be inside the action. <laughs> oh my gosh! We're going to move on to your fine questions here. If you hang out with us all the way in, I'll give some ways you can get in touch with us, or you can scroll down in your episode description and click on the links you find there. First question comes in and says. How do you know when a situation, not a relationship, but like a job or a school thing, being rough means that it's time to make a change versus when it's time to push through? Very cool question. I really like like the angle on that. And Jed, where would we start off here? 
I think it's a great question. Uh, I, I don't think there are any rules for this. So let's instead talk about some guidelines that may be useful because it's a good question. And we've either all been there on needing to make this evaluation or we will face this at some point because this is kind of something that comes up in life. So again, guidelines. Here's the first guideline to look at is, is there a reliable timeline for this getting better? Is there a reliable timeline for improvement? If we're looking at, well, it'll get better someday. No one can say when or even a scale of when that might be. You know, maybe it's a year, maybe it's a hundred years. Um, that's something where hitting eject may make sense. Um, if it's going to get better and we can confidently say that, and that's going to happen 90 days from now, that's different consideration. So I think, do we have a reliable timeline for improvement? Do we have a sense of what that timeline is? Here's the next guideline to look at is, uh, and this, the word I'm about to use would mean different things in different contexts, but is there a payday coming? In other words, you're dealing with something unpleasant. Is there some version of payoff that is coming as a result of having put up with this unpleasant situation? Maybe that's a promotion. Maybe that's a degree. Maybe that's some form of accolade that matters for advancing your career. Is there a payday coming? Is there a payoff coming? Um, because if there's, if there's no benefit, if it's just, oh, you, you'll suffer and that's it, that's, that would be probably a, a time to look at maybe I need to make other arrangements. So in terms of guidelines, is there a payday coming? Then here's the next guideline, which goes right along with the previous one. Is said payoff proportional to what you are putting up with? Hmm. If you're going to put up with, if the boss says, we really all need to pitch in and really get after it for these next you know, six weeks to, to land the Jenkins account. And at the end of that, we will have a uh, modest pizza party to celebrate. That is probably not a proportional payoff for you working 16 hour days for the next six weeks. But on the contrary, if it's, you know, no, this is, there's a major advancement coming on the other side of this, that may be proportional. It's up to you to decide that, but it's worth looking at is what I am going to get out of this worth all that I am, am uh, putting into this. Then the next guideline, and again, this kind of goes along with the same stuff, is the place that we're going to land on the other side of this hard time, um, is it of strategic importance? Is it of ongoing importance? In other words, this payoff, is that like a one-time, one-and-done thing, or is it the kind of thing that pays dividends over time? That could be literal financial dividends. It, it could also be because it's this certification I didn't have before, like everything's easier from then on out, or there are just way more doors that, that are open to me. If it's something that will continue to yield benefits, you know, year in and year out as you move forward versus just a one and done kind of thing, those are two different considerations. I want to pause there for a second, and I want to suggest something that folks who have grown up in Christian culture are not used to looking at, which is... I'm encouraging you to look at and say, are they making it worth my while? Mm. Whether it's a school or a job, are they making it worth my while? What am I getting out of this? And I want to point that out to you and tell you that's a good thing for you to be thinking about because a lot of folks who have grown up in Christian culture, you've been told you should just work hard at everything you do no matter what. Yeah, It, it doesn't matter what the payoff is, just, you know, thine hands should work as unto the Lord. 
And that's not how business works. And school is just another form of business. If we're not clear on that, we, we should be. Yeah. Just look at the endowment figures. That's exactly what I'm saying. Business, and it's just as true if you work for a nonprofit as a for-profit, business is about you put something in and you get something back out. That's, that's why you're doing it. I have worked for places that went on rough times where, they, where their checks bounced. And I promise you, when you stop getting paid, you stop showing up. So this is about you put something in, you get something out. It's important to recognize that that is the dynamic that's going on. And therefore, you should be thinking carefully about what you're being asked to put in and what you are getting back out of it. And if that's a good arrangement, you can feel good about. Then here's kind of the last piece, and it goes along with all these, but it does require that firm knowledge of this is business, man. I'm putting something in, but I'm getting some back out. Have we checked to see if there's a better path? Hmm. Because if there's a better path and you have access to it, you should take it. Again, a lot of folks who have been raised around Christian stuff feel like, well, I couldn't, I couldn't leave this job or this school program or this thing that's not very good just because something else is better for me. Yes, you can. Yeah. You can and you should. That's that's literally how life works. Have we checked if there is a better path? Have we checked if we have access to it? Have we checked who in our circle of friends and associates might know about that better path and how to access it if we're not sure? Have we checked our network to look in? If we've not done that, then we're not prepared to say whether we should hang in this rough situation or not. There's some due diligence that we should do to evaluate, is there a better path? Do I have access to it? Is this a time-limited thing? Is there a reliable timeline? Is there a payday? Is that payday proportional? Does it put me in a better place? If we can begin to look at those questions, we can have way more confidence in either direction. Either I should hang in there and, and buck up camper, or I should absolutely move on to something else because this is not a good fit. I think it's all fantastically put and great points up and down that answer. And Lee, I'd love to, to switch to you here because the person in the question simply says the situation we're talking about is not necessarily a relationship situation, but that doesn't mean there aren't relationships involved with it. Um, right. If you leave school, you're going to have to talk to your parents about it. You're going to have to turn in a letter to somebody. You know, if you leave a job, you might have friends at that job. You certainly have to tell a boss. Um, you may have a partner or loved ones you want to talk this over with and think through some of the stuff. Uh, Jed is giving us there. So what, even if it's not about uh, romantic or familiar friendship relationships, there's a relational aspect we need to deal with here. And how do we look at that? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I do love um, just how much Jed has covered the bases on this. And exactly as you said, Matt, within all of those things, whether it is school or whether there's, whether it is a job situation, you are interfacing with people. So you do have relational aspects to this. One of the things that I think that, it's it, some of this is going to be related to some of the things that Jed said. Jed talked about a really important thing that folks who are raised in Christian culture are not comfortable with and not really, you know, raised feeling free to do, you know, advocating for their own self and their own desires and stuff like that. Another thing that is just kind of, it's, I don't know if it's just not taught in a lot of Christian culture or a lot of folks growing up in around church stuff don't know how to do this and don't have a lot of experience with this. But when you are in these kinds of situations, whether it be school or work related or whatever, 
I can't stress enough the importance of over-communicating to people above you and below you. Um, if you find yourself in a managerial role, over-communicating, asking extremely specific questions of people that you are supervising, people that you are working with, um, people that are alongside you, people that are on your team. If you have a manager or a supervisor or a boss or whatever, over-communicating the way that they talk to you or handle you, the way that that stuff makes you feel, the way that you understand them um, as far as the things that you're being asked to do, all that kind of stuff. Um, I had a situation recently with somebody that I was working with where I had delegated a conversation to someone else to have to another person. When I met with the third person and talked to them about the conversation, they were able to say to me like, hey, when I had this conversation with so-and-so who spoke to me, um, it made me feel this way. And immediately I could see from their perspective um, wow, you are exactly right. Like if, if somebody had talked to me that way, I would have felt those exact things. I can see where that person was coming from and talking to you, but because they were comfortable coming to me and saying exactly what was communicated, exactly how it made them feel, and then asking follow-up questions, I was able to clear it up. I was able to take the situation and, and, and move the way we handled it and change the way we handled it and all that kind of stuff. All that to say, we... Folks who are raised in church stuff, we are not encouraged to step into uncomfortable spaces relationally and conversationally. Um, we're encouraged to just, you know, everybody probably has good intentions. We're just going to believe the best about everybody. I'm just going to take this and deal with it. Communicate ultra clearly about everything that you understood, everything that you heard, everything that 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 thing made you feel with both supervisors, with bosses, with teachers, with whomever. Hey, when you said this thing, this is what I understood. And this is the way that that thing made me feel. Is that what you were communicating? And is this what you're expecting? So much of what we experience that is difficult um, with, with school stuff, with job stuff is just learning how to step into discomfort in some of those work or school relationships and just have ultra, ultra clear communication. Um, communicate what you what you heard. Communicate what you felt. Communicate about what you expect. Make those things as <laughs> as plain and explicit as possible. And um, and some of these things may alter, change, clear up just from that. Um, it may just be a revelation that somebody that's supervising you or somebody that's working alongside you had no idea that they were coming across that way or had no idea the way that that thing made you feel because of your past experience or something like that. So that's another space where I think, especially folks who have been raised in, in certain church environments, just need to feel the freedom and the boldness to go ahead and communicate as clearly as possible about feelings, about expectations, about what we understand from you know, from managerial roles, from supervisors on down. Yeah, it's absolutely right. I think that's incredibly well put. I will add one thing to the, the kind of communicativeness that Lee is giving us there. I think he's right on about that. There is during the situations, we need to be as communicative as possible. Like he's saying, you need to read things back to people. You need to make sure you're getting on the same page. There is a point where we may need to do less communicating. And that is, if you decide this is over, then 
Right. You don't act, you can, but you don't actually need to give uh, the Dean's office or the boss or whoever a complete rundown of everything that went wrong and why you think that this is not, you know, the place for you. You can just say, well, you know, it's been, it's been great. And uh, I'm on to the next thing. I think some, sometimes what can catch some people up is that they have to like a hundred percent justify a decision to make a change to everyone in 360 degrees. And that's just not true. Um, you have to, you know, justify that to yourself. If you have, you know, a spouse or people who are going to be impacted by this in your house, you should probably talk that over with them. Definitely. Um, but as far as the boss or the teacher or, you know, people who ask you a question about it when they notice that you're not, that you took a semester off or whatever, you can feel free to give them as much or as little information about that as you so desire. And that's another way in which, um, as Jed was pointing out, it is okay and not inherently dishonest or evil or wrong to do the best thing for you. Mm -hmm. If you might need a recommendation from this boss or you might like to come back and work for here, you don't have to tell them, well, I'm leaving because you're terrible at this. And I would like to work for someone who's not terrible at this. So bye. That's it's not going to make anything better. We we can focus on things that make, make stuff better. There's nothing wrong with massaging and uh, limiting communication when you're at that point. Now, as Lee points out, if we're going to, if we're still in a situation that we think we can, that can be changed, that can be spun more positively, communication is going to be a big, big part of that, no doubt. But we can, when the decision has been made that we are going to take our course of action there, everybody gets a narrative. And I think it's kind of as Jed was talking about with the just always work hard, no matter what, for no reward idea that gets put forward in Christian culture. Another very simplistic idea that gets put forward in Christian culture is, uh, yes, Jesus said the truth will set you free. That doesn't mean you have to tell the whole truth and your whole emotional experience to all people at all times. Yeah. You, you know, the world is, is narratives and very rarely do you, do you need to give people you don't have deeply intimate relationships with the entire 360 degree view of something. And that's totally, totally fine. With that, we move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, second Thessalonians 4:10 says the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. I guess brought up a lot to justify pretty bad political stuff. I feel like this is not a very Jesus-y sentiment. So what does that mean? And another, another great question, a, a verse that I think does get tried out a lot and troubles a lot of folks in a lot of ways. And Jed, where do we start off here? It's a fantastic question. And if you can dig it, this will sound weird. It is worth looking at what the Bible means here for a second. But I kind of want to do a quick move away from the Bible uh, because I think that the Bible has been so massively misused here that, that we kind of need to, to ground ourselves in some basic reality. I have worked with literally thousands of economically disadvantaged people, thousands, over years and years and years across actually huge um, geographical distances. Uh, it includes Chicago, it includes Los Angeles, it includes places on other sides of the world. I have known vanishingly few lazy people. <laughs> I, I, need you, I need you to hear me on that. I have known vanishingly few lazy people. Whatever this Bible verse is or isn't talking about, the idea that there are all these lazy, poor people running around who just aren't willing to work hard and therefore should starve is just a total nonsense idea. 
It's dude. It's just not true. It's not. I have. I have not seen it. My colleagues who have also worked with thousands of economically disadvantaged people have not seen it. It's yep. simply not true. And what's interesting is I, I actually I was talking with with Hallie about this because, you know, Hallie's been in the corporate world for for a lot of years. And I was asking, you know, like, how many lazy people have you seen in the corporate world? And the interesting thing is not zero, but a very small percentage. The, the number of people who are noticeably lazy is is pretty darn small. So I said, OK, well, you spent a long time in the military. How, how many lazy people did you deal with in the military? It's like very, very few. It's a very, very small percentage. And I think I go through all of that to say that it's important to know when people are just straight up manipulating you. Hmm. People will tell you that there's this huge epidemic of laziness as a way to just be greedy. There's not a huge epidemic of laziness, my friend. If you're listening to this right now, I need you to hear me on that. There is just not this huge epidemic of laziness, but there is an epidemic of greed. And there are people looking for ways to excuse their inexcusable level of greed. I want to offer an idea that I believe is true and that is important to me personally. You don't have to go with me on this, but um, I want you to think about it at the very least. If you tell yourself, hey, I'm happy to be kind to people who deserve it, you will keep finding reasons why people don't deserve it. I want you to think about that. If you tell yourself, hey, I'm happy to be kind, I'm happy to be generous, I'm happy to be cool to people who've earned it, to people who deserve it, to people who are worthy and deserving, you will keep finding reasons why people don't deserve that kindness or that generosity or that consideration. In my view, you don't have to have this view, but it is my view. In my view, generosity is a foundational decision. It stands on its own. You are either going to find a way to be generous or you are not. Everyone is limited in their generosity by the resources that they have. That much is true. But if you're not prepared to be generous today, even if it's with a kind word because you don't have any money at all, you're not going to be generous tomorrow. Go ahead. There's a lot of... I'll I'll be really generous and say it's well-intentioned advice that floats around in Christian circles of saying, well, don't be generous now, but later down the road, one day, once your ship has come in and you've got everything in order, then, oh, be generous. Just as there are very few lazy people out there, there are very few people out there where that actually happens, where they wait and eventually someday all their, their situation is perfect and then they're generous. That's really, really rare. And it's rare for a lot of reasons. If you're going to be generous ever, start being generous now. Again, maybe maybe you don't have money right now. That's cool. There's a lot of ways to be generous. Start being generous now. Don't be yeah. generous to people who deserve it. Be generous because, again, you will find no one deserves it. If you're looking to qualify whether people should get it or not, no one will get it. And I don't mean that you should – given an unwise way. I don't mean that you should go to the guy who's literally holding a sign saying need beer money and give him a hundred dollar bill. That's, that's not what I mean, but I mean, start from a place of deciding foundationally, I will be generous. Mm. 
Start from a place of saying, I am looking out for others who are in need where I have some ability to do something about that, and I will find within reason a way to do something about that. If you don't start it now, you're not going to start it later. Here's one more thing while I'm on my soapbox. Generosity is a form of creativity. Creativity takes time to develop. You can't be not generous for 50 years and then suddenly be a genius at, crea- at generosity. It doesn't work that way. You need to train. If you're going to help other people, if you're going to be generous to other people, you have to learn how to do that. You have to develop those muscles. You have to develop that form of creativity. Intelligence, loosely speaking, is the ability to see connections. You become intelligent about needs and generosity, but you only do it by doing it. You only learn by doing it. I want to circle all the way back to the start with the, you know, he who shall not work shall not eat. Man, Yes, I recognize it's in the Bible. I know Lee's going to get into it. But in terms of the way that's used in our country, forget that noise, dude. Miss me with that. That is not the heart of Jesus. It is not the heart of the Bible. And it's not sane. That's not the way that the world works. And one more final thing. You wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that. Think about that. You would not want to be on the receiving end of that. What is hateful to you, do not do to another. Absolutely right. Fantastically put at every turn. And Lee, uh, why don't we dive into the verse itself? What what are we actually looking at when we look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 here? Yeah, I mean, uh, everything that Jed said is so, so key and so important. I mean, when you're looking at the the Bible, and I totally agree with every single word of it, when you're looking at the Bible here, uh, I mean— you know the the place that I'm going to land is going to be a very similar place where Jed began, which is just that people massively misuse the Bible so that they can do whatever they want to do. Um, the The specifics in this situation are that the you know this Paul was a guy that you know went around telling people about Jesus, and little communities of Christians would begin, and they would start. Uh, taking care of each other. They would start hanging out. They would start meeting together. They would they would become a community. And uh, oftentimes it was very disparate, you know, diverse people in, you know, in, in big cities and little towns all over the place who didn't know each other before. And now they're connected. Now they're this little community. Some of them would get kicked out of other communities and other situations. And now th- these are their people. And so now they they don't have connections that they used to have. It's just it, it's a difficult thing. They're literally starting communities from scratch. They had they had widows to to feed and to house. They had poor people to take care of. They were they were each other's world. Um, he is writing at the beginning of literally the beginning of like the church groups of people believing in Jesus becoming new communities, and he's saying to all these people, hey, we all, we're, we are what each other have. We're, we're all each other have. And so it's going to take everybody, you know, putting their hands in and taking care of each other. That's what he's talking about in First Thessalonians. That's what he's, that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. It's what, it's what so many, so many places at the beginning of this movement we're talking about. This is not about, it should, first of all, it should never ever, ever be used in any kind of political conversation in modern American society. That is not what any of these verses are about. And by the way, if you do want to talk about the Bible um, in, in specific situations like this, the Bible in, in the New Testament as well has a parable that Jesus told 
about him paying everybody the same amount, even though some started work at at 8 a.m. and some started work an hour before quitting time. And and he and and to use Jed's word again at the end of it, he's the, the people that were upset that they were getting paid the same as the folks who only worked one hour. He said, are you angry because I'm generous with my own money? <laughs> this is the same the, this the heart of Jesus told that story the heart the 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 holy spirit directed a guy to say to a group of people who most of them a lot of them kicked out of their families a lot of them kicked out of their synagogues a lot of people kicked out of all kinds of situations forming a brand new tiny little community trying to hold each other together a guy saying hey you guys know love each other a bunch and take care of each other a bunch i mean first thessalonians 4 if you were to just read the chapter the main thing that you would come up with is how much how important it is that people love each other that's what he's talking about is and that's what the work was the work was about loving each other it's how they were supposed to know each other it's how they were supposed to be known in the world is loving each other and taking care of each other and by the way when we do talk about i mean i love what jed's talking about about the creativity of generosity about i love the idea the, the thing that i kept thinking of when he was talking was that generosity it's I love that he said decision. It's uh, another great word here would be it, that it's a disposition. Yes, yes, that yes. I, I have the disposition of generosity. What Paul's talking about is not some cutthroat thing where, I mean, Paul <laughs> Paul literally was a, he was a rich kid who became a PhD and and he gave it all up. He gave it all up to live a very difficult life because he was convinced that he had seen Jesus risen from the dead and he wanted everybody to know about this great love that had captured him and he wanted them to have it too. And he was convinced that everybody could know and love a God who loved them back, who, by the way, gave his whole self, gave away everything to come down from heaven and save everybody. This is, this is a religion about generosity. It's a religion about sacrifice. It's a religion about giving up everything you have for other people. And Paul was just saying to a group of people who were forming a new community, hey, y'all, let's take care of each other. It's kind of a locker room, like pregame speech. Let's make sure that we love each other. Let's make sure that we take care of each other. We can do this, right? Let's do this well. That's what this thing is about. It should never, ever, ever be used by anybody with a political scheme or with any kind of, with their hands on any kind of purse, making decisions about other people, categorizing people and and shaming other people and all that stuff. This was a specific thing for a specific group of people. And the more we understand that, the more we understand why words like this would be in the Bible. That's fantastically put by Lee as well there. Uh, Two quick things I will... I will tack on the end here. Um, one is if there is someone who you is, is getting wound up about this idea that, you know, people who should not, who do not work, should not eat. Um, and you, you, obviously, as we will mention, whether it be on the internet, real life, whatever, you should not argue with them. You should not talk to them. You should leave. Uh, or if you're stuck there, uh, my go-to is I like to sit and think about ice cream sandwiches. Um, that's a better yeah. use of your mental energy, but just if you need, if you feel the need to, or just as a thought for you, you know who definitionally does not work? Investors, landlords, yeah. people with generational wealth. They are, by any agrarian or uh, economic definition, they do not work. You, they actually, that's what differentiates them from people who work wage jobs. If you invest, that's not working. That's a totally different thing. But the, the other half of this, and it goes to that disposition idea, which I love that, that Jed and Lee kind of both spoke to, if you are looking for reasons to be ungenerous or greedy, the word, um, you will always find them. 
if you are looking for reasons to be generous, you will always find them. And uh, as a perfect example, Jed kind of obliquely referenced the the Dave Ramsey thing of what is it? You have to save like like no one else, so we can give like no one else. Uh, while we're uh, talking here, I looked up Dave Ramsey's net worth, and internet projections are always a little bit wonky, but uh, it's supposedly in the nine figures. So why isn't he spending all day every day giving away money if that's what his the thing is? Because he got enough of it. It's almost like that day never comes. And there's always something more we need the money for. And at some point, and this is an actual uh, sinful part, at some point what you're going to do when you think that way is money is going to be the thing that controls your life. Because when you have to grip tightly to it and cannot give it away yet, money is the thing making the decisions for you. It's almost like you should not store up in storehouses because bad things will happen. I don't think that's in part of any... uh, university financial piece or otherwise, but a guy said that once. It's pretty good advice. Another thing that a generosity is a disposition of generosity is going to give you is freedom. It's going to give you definitely, you know, the Bible talk. One of the things that's very clear in in Paul's writings is a cheerful giver. And you cannot be a cheerful giver. If you only give when you feel like you are boxed into a corner where you can't find a reason not to be giving. Yep. So that's really not a way to go. And takes us all back to where uh, Jed started us. And this is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky line to walk sometimes, but certainly when we come across things for ourselves in scripture that, that challenge us, that concern us, that make us think it's great to wrestle with that. It's great to, to work through that, to ask questions about that. When someone else is saying like, but the Bible says you have the freedom in Christ to say, I don't care what the Bible says. You need a better argument if you want me to go yeah. with you on this. Because I have an actual relationship with living God and generosity is so far pretty part, pretty important part of it. So you're not going to uh, one isolated Bible verse me out of that. That's uh, that's actually not blasphemy. You're allowed to say, I don't care what you think the Bible says. No. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Always a good thing to keep in your back pocket. With that, we're going to move on to our final question here. It comes in and says... I was recently talking with a friend and they they mentioned, see you at the pole. I joked about how it was weird that it was a Christian fad to do something pretty much the opposite of what Jesus taught about prayer. He had never realized it was weird. He agreed once it was pointed out. I didn't know how to have that conversation. How do you talk to people about crazy Christian stuff from their past, but not your own? Uh, again, another another cool question. And I, I think we uh, the three of us on this show have had similar conversations with people where we assumed they were on the same side and like, yeah, isn't that an insane thing that we were forced to do? And someone goes, I, well, now that you mention it, but I never really <laughs> considered it that way. And it's a, it's a delicate situation to be in, but Jed, what, what would we have to say to this? Man, it's a great question. I'm really glad that you wrote it in. I'm going to start with something that's going to feel, I think maybe a little far afield, but it's going to come right back to the heart of what you're asking. And that is, if you've ever felt kind of you know, uh, anxious about so- social interactions or, or, or awkward in social interactions. There's a thing that can help tremendously that works most of the time. And that is to recognize that in so many interactions, there's actually a script and you should know what the script is and you should use it because that's why it's there. So I'll give an example. Someone says to you, Oh, uh, my birthday is tomorrow. You say, Oh man, happy birthday. That's great. I hope you have a great day. I hope it's a really, really cool day for you. It's the script. It's what you say. It's great. You don't 
like you don't have to mean it, but you don't have to come up with something like super deep or super original. Like there's there's no pressure from anybody for you to do that. Like the script is great. The script is like 99.999% of people would be delighted with the script in that moment. And you shouldn't worry about that small fraction that, that doesn't want it. Stick to the script. Know the script. Stick to it. That's true for happy occasions. It's true for sad occasions. It's true for losses. It's true for um, uh, new opportunities. It's true for people moving in. It's true for people moving out. There's scripts for most of those situations. And that's a great place to begin. And it honestly, like for real, um, not for everyone, but for, for, for some folks that can help to feel a lot more confident in social situations to just have a sense of here are some scripts that, that work. And I, I know how to say them. And again, that's not inauthentic. It's good. It's really, really good to know the scripts and to use them. Now I say all of that to say, what do you do in those moments when there's not a script? What do you do when someone presents information to you? And it's like, I don't know if this is good or bad or happy or sad or what kind of reaction you're looking for here. What do we do in those moments where there isn't a script? Because I think that's actually kind of the heart of what you're describing in this question. And I'm going to give you a two-word answer. Go ahead. I've, I've got snark after that, but please do, do something helpful first. Here's the two-word answer. Be cool. That's very <laughs> helpful. My idea was going to be to look off to the side and yell, line. And hope someone came up with something for you. <laughs> but be cool is much more much more likely to work out. Be cool. If you have access to um, a director and uh, you know a showrunner, then yes, you should ask for a line. Just having a friend in one of those in the, like the writing the very old director uniform, like the writing yes. pants and the hat, just following you yeah. around. Yeah, the beret and yeah, the, exactly. the little the wooden the wood and cloth uh, uh, chair off to the side. I'm looking for a script coordinator. <laughs> if you have a full-time script coordinator who follows you everywhere you go, then yes, for sure, do that. If if you are one of us, the unwashed masses who does not have access to that, then be cool. Let me tell you. Let me tell you how to be cool. The first is you don't have to have an immediate reaction. That's that's one of the the very freeing things in life is when we're on something where there's not a script. You don't have to have an immediate reaction. And one of the most powerful things you can do with almost never the wrong move is just say, tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. Hey, what was that like? Break that down for me. This, when you're not sure what else to say, these, these are actually great questions and they, they fall in the uh, rubric of being cool. And because you're speaking to this person as a friend, not as a therapist, not as a pastor, not as a counselor, but as a friend, there's only really one question that you're trying to ask, and that is, what do they want in this interaction? Yep. What do they want? That's actually, if you can get, that's the point of the script, right? When there is a script, because we've already established in advance what this person wants when they tell you that tomorrow is my birthday. They're not looking for you to say, oh, I'm sorry, the ravages of age happened to us all. That's, that's not the script. They're, they're telling you it's their birthday because they, they want you to wish them a happy birthday. So the thing when they're, I went through a lot of really weird religious stuff when I was a kid. The thing you're trying to figure out is, Okay, what are you what are you looking for here? It could be that they're joking. Um, it could be that they're looking for you to commiserate. It could be that they are looking to vent. Um, it could be that they're just trying to get a sense of is this normal? Has has anyone else dealt with this? But the more that you can ask gentle, kind questions, the more you can get a sense of what their goal is in sharing this information. And then you can do what a cool friend does, which is just support them in that. 
if they're looking to vent, you can just give them a safe place to vent. If they're looking to commiserate, you can say, well, man, I, I didn't get that particular real weird religious one, but here's one that I got. I, you know, it's, we, didn't we all grow up in weird ways? Um, if they're trying to figure out if it's normal, you can, you can say, well, Hey, I mean, obviously I can't speak for everybody, but you know, it, it certainly seems atypical in my experience and whatnot. But the more that you can focus on, again, be cool and figure out what is their goal here with this information that they're sharing? What, what are they trying to do here and how can I just support them in that? And the better everything's going to work. Um, and I think, again, the point, the point of having scripts is to take the pressure off of you. The point of the following advice is to take the pressure off of you. You are not their therapist. Mm-hmm. If, if, you, if you were, you would know. You are not their pastor. If you were, you would know. You are not the person charged with discipling them in their spiritual walk. If you were, you would know. And in all those cases, they would know too. Like there, there would be no confusion between the two of you. Um, if there's not like a clear arrangement that you are one of those things, then you get to be their friend. And, and being their friend is just about trying to figure out what they're looking for in that interaction and figuring out how you can support them in that. Those kind of gentle, kind questions like, tell me more about that, or what was that like, or, wow, I, I don't know anything about that. Can you, can you break that down for me? Are really good ways to, to suss out where they're coming from and what might be helpful to them. If you pair all of that with just having an, an inclination to want to be there for your friend, no doubt you're going to land in a good place and it's all going to be good stuff. Excellent stuff right there. And Lee, where do we close this out? I mean, uh, you know, Jed nailed it. That That's all absolutely fantastic stuff, especially just, you know, just relationship stuff in general. I think there is, there is a sense, especially with just kind of, I don't know, with, with the way certain things happen on social media and stuff like that. There is a sense that we all have to be on the same thing. And, what I would say in that is you really don't. And, and, and it's not your job to make sure that everybody's on the same thing. I was recently in a conversation with a friend and they were talking to me about, um, you know, a movie that they watched recently. And one of the actors in the movie is, is an actor that has been pretty widely canceled by (laughs) the known world. And to Jed's point, the, this, this, dude was not, uh, you know, sharing this story so that I would police what actors he's allowed to like and what (laughs) actors he's not allowed to like. He wanted to tell me a story about the movie because the movie made him feel a certain way because of the vibe of the movie and the way that the way that it was acted and stuff like that. And so we're just in this conversation. The, like it would have been really brutal and, and just an absolute buzzkill for me to just squash the the moment by saying, you know, everybody's out on that actor, right? Like, uh, because, and and the important thing here, just to speak a little bit more into the Jed's be cool advice is that what you create in a moment like that is the, the spotlight has now completely shifted to you and that person feels embarrassed. Yep. And that, what you're talking about right there is is something that's highly possible. And I, I think in a situation, especially with kind of religious stuff, what we want to avoid is just the feeling of kind of shame and embarrassment over a thing they didn't cause. They didn't invent, you know, uh, CCM or K-Love. And, you know, you may hate it or not want to listen to it in your car. That's totally cool. One of the things that 
and this goes back to some, something, some advice that Matt gave at the end of the last uh, uh, question is you don't have to take part in any piece of the Christian or church stuff culture that you don't want to. You just don't have to do it. You don't have to listen to the Christian music and you don't, you just, you just don't have to do any of that stuff. And, uh, you know, Jed is famous for saying that church people love church stuff and, and, and they really do, don't they? I mean, they, they do, they do, they, they, they love it. But the thing is, is you don't have to be on any of it. Um, you, you get to decide, you get to decide I'm not taking part in that piece of it, but you don't have to make that call for everybody else. I mean, as, as weird as it may seem to, you know, uh, certain people like, like, you know, this guy that you hang out with that goes to your church, it just really still thinks all the Veggie Tales stuff was great. He just really loved it. That's fine. Uh, just give him the Veggie Tales. <laughs> it's, we don't have to. We don't have to do this. And I. But I think the the whole key here is um, that in, in moments where we can really avoid, you know, making somebody feel embarrassed. And that's that's really what we want to do is is I want to avoid a situation where I'm going to say a thing which is going to shift the spotlight to me and make somebody feel embarrassed. Jed's exactly right. This whole thing comes down to relationship. And what's the goal of the conversation? Is is the person asking for advice? Is the person asking what you think about a certain thing? Is the person saying to you like, hey, um, you're in my house and I'm playing this playlist and it has – you know, Stephen Curtis Chapman and Amy Grant on it. And I would like to know what you think about that. Do you still listen to any of the Christian music you listened to when you were a kid? Now you're in a conversation. Yep. But if if we're not having that conversation, just politely let the playlist play and and hang out. Um and because the person's not asking me and I love I love the phrase be cool. But what we're trying to avoid is the idea of of making somebody feel embarrassed about something they didn't create. They didn't yeah, they, they didn't yeah. really it just happened to them and maybe they dug it or maybe they maybe they haven't thought about it. But until they're asking about it, we don't want to create that embarrassment. Absolutely right. Great stuff from both of these guys here. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, take out the song of this week. This is from our friend the Pool House Guru. It's a song from him based on 2 Corinthians 317. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do that.
freedom.